very fortunate today to have Carol here. Carol, please talk about your book, your own stories, whatever you want. Uh, the meeting is yours, my friend, and thank you again for taking your time. Uh, welcome to Tosnow, my friend. Thanks so much, Mark. Uh, it's really, it's a pleasure to be here. It's an honor for you to ask me, and I'm really happy to have the chance to connect with folks and, and do a form of service in my own recovery. It helps me to stay sober, and so I'm grateful for it. Uh, and I, I, I don't think my time is any more valuable than anyone else's. Uh, I just, it's a little tight today. <laughs> That's how it's going. So I'm happy that we were able to work it out. Um, so uh, I'll go ahead and I'll start sharing and I'll keep an eye on time so I don't go too long because I want to hear from other folks too. But uh, my name's Carl. I identify as an alcoholic. Uh, that identification is really important to me. Uh, from my perspective, it's, it's saved my life and it's, it's helped me to make sense of my problems, my family's problems. And um, it's, a, it's a problem that's stretched throughout my family for generations. And in a way, because of that, it was difficult for me to see my own problem because I constantly compared to my parents, both my mother and father. Uh, and so I'll, I'd like to just talk a little bit about my personal story in, in the tradition of recovery meetings and just say what it was like and what happened and what it's like now. And uh, th I did write this book and Mark asked me to speak on the book. So I'll mention some things about it, but uh, uh, the, the point of this is not to um, be like a marketing call or to try to convince you to go run off and buy my book. And this is, I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity to connect uh, and share. So I, I like to start telling the story of my alcoholism when I was in medical school, especially because when I was early in recovery, I, I felt like there was something special about that. And I had a lot of shame about the fact that I was a, a clinician or at the time a clinician in training who was also having problems with substances, even though there's so many examples of people who have done that. And one of the founders of AA was the doctor as everyone knows. Uh, but I, I had struggled with drinking primarily throughout medical school later on as things got tougher and I had trouble waking up in the morning and I had trouble sticking to the sort of um, just inhumane schedule and inhumane effort that I had set for myself. I, I got Adderall too, uh, the amphetamine salts uh, prescribed by a primary care doctor just so I could attenuate the hangovers in the morning and continue working at a frantic pace uh, trying to pump out scholarly papers and distinguish myself and win trophies and try to convince others that I was okay. So that by the time I entered my training, when I graduated medical school, I was thrown into um, what we call internship in the States, which is the first year after med medical school, where you do everything. I was a psychiatrist, but I was, I was called upon to do everything. So that I was in the emergency room and then I was up on the general medical floor. And then I was up on the internal medicine floor and the uh, the infectious disease floor. And the thing that struck me was that so many people were having problems with alcohol. There are people with like really bad pancreatic issues or um, severe alcohol withdrawal, trembling and shaking and having seizures and people coming in with liver problems, even for an outright liver transplant. And all the while I had this sense of like, I'm not that different from these people that I, that a lot of days and like, especially psychosomatically when when I saw people with liver problems, I, I imagined that my own liver would ache. There was even a moment where I had one of my co-residents draw some of my blood and send it off to the lab for a liver function test. I thought it was kind of cute at the time, like, oh, this is, this is kind of funny thing to do. And maybe I'll, I'll show what a hard drinker I am by having elevated labs. Uh, but I was really scared. And I was really scared because I was working really hard to try to change. And it just wasn't working for me. Uh, I, I would write out reflections in my journal, set moderation goals for myself, and then I would blow through them. I, I, for as long as I had been an adult, I had set up occasional periods of abstinence. I would take two, two weeks off here and then a month off there. Um, and I would always break it. It was always, always impossible to stick to. 
And it was always individualistic. It was always like me trying to figure out the answer for myself. And it got to the point where uh, I, I essentially got an intervention from my residency program director. They pulled me into an office and they said, listen, we know something's wrong. We know something is up. You really need to get help. And I knew in that moment from being part of the system and from knowing these people for years and years that it was safe, that I could trust them. They said, listen, there are these confidential services and you're not in trouble. And, you know, you can go get help. And if you need time off, you can get time off. And, you know, I was really, really lucky because most people don't get uh, that kind of compassionate treatment. I think even from other hospitals or uh, clinical training programs the, to say nothing of other jobs. And um, e even so, I, I felt like if I really owned up to my problem, I couldn't live. I just didn't know what that would mean. I couldn't imagine a life without drinking. Uh, I couldn't imagine how difficult it would be. I had struggled for so long. And I, I was really attached to this notion that I had to do it all myself. So I said, no, I lied to them. I said, listen, I know what this looks like. It's not a substance problem. And so I went back to drinking, I went back to using Adderall, cocaine crept in. And it just got to the point where uh, I had to get sober. I had to get sober because I, I wound up in a manic episode. I took so much drugs and uh, drank so much that I lost touch with reality. The NYPD had to take me to the hospital and I was admitted to a psychiatric ward because I had a total psychotic break. I thought I was in a holy war and um, it was a true disaster. So it was at that moment that uh, I finally felt like I could let go and say, you know, I... I I guess I can't keep up this front anymore. I guess I can't keep up this story that I, I don't have a problem. It, it had to get that bad for me. And then even then, I, I still had these little glimpses or uh, these sort of flirtations with uh, going back on uh, going back on that revelation, going back on that admission. Uh, some of that was uh, I encountered some stigma. You know, and I think that's important to say because, say because um, you know, in the U.S. and around the world, addiction treatment is not always great. Sometimes people have like really uh, sort of hardcore, confrontational, and I think unproductive methods of trying to connect with people. Uh, in my own case, I was really into Zen Buddhism. I thought of myself as an agnostic Zen Buddhist and I really didn't like all the God talk. I didn't like the Judeo-Christian talk. It seemed like everybody at the rehab that I was sent to um, was fully in that tradition and they would like play some lip service to like, oh, you could have another spiritual or you could think of higher power in this way or that way. But at the bottom, they were all saying that like, you have to turn it over to God and that um, God is a, a sort of metaphysical construct that lives in the sky and will do something for you that you can't do for yourself. And um I really struggle with that. I had trouble identifying with people, um, especially like the treatment professionals otherwise. Um, so I think there were some ideological biases. I think there was some outright stigma. There was some harsh confrontation. Um, and uh, I had to come to a point where I realized that like, listen, this is not a perfect system. These are not perfect people. You know, in a shocking twist, people in recovery groups are not um, always like 100% buttoned up and perfectly collected, but it still is what I need. It's still, I'm enough like this to qualify as an alcoholic. I'm the kind of person who should not drink again. And for me, that was a leap of faith. It wasn't, it wasn't a kind of faith in um, a, a supernatural power. It was a, a, a leap of faith into the notion that there, there is something like a collective consciousness of people out here who have come before me. And for better or for worse, regardless of the fact that they're not always doing it the way that I would like it to be done, even though I feel like as a psychiatrist, I, I, I can recognize ways that this is maybe not helpful or even not evidence-based, um, I, I have to let go. This has to be something bigger than myself. It can't just be me. It can't just be me figuring it out because I spent a lot of time trying to figure this out and I just haven't been able to crack that nut myself. And so that's how I entered recovery. Uh, and it wasn't totally smooth from that point. I, I was mandated because I was a doctor, I was mandated to a program where I got monitored treatment 
and I got monitored uh, meeting logs and uh, I had to take urine tests. And at the time I thought my life was over. I thought I I'll never be able to practice in a different United States state. Uh, the fact that I had to abruptly leave training and take this leave of absence means that everybody will think that I'm broken somehow, I'm a piece of shit, that I, uh, um, I'm not trustworthy. Uh, and I didn't realize it at the time, but it was really saving my life. It was really the systems and the people who had came before me who were doing for me what I was not able to do for myself. And uh, I look back on that time and I was really grateful because I don't know if I would have drank again in those five years. It was a five-year period that I got monitor treatment um, and a lot of people around me who were really keeping tabs on me and helping me and making sure that I was safe and making sure that importantly that I wasn't hurting other people as well. Um, being a doctor is a, a privilege. It's not a right. And nobody, uh, nobody just gets to be a doctor. It's a, it's a position of public trust where um, I'm responsible for other folks. But that's also true of my other relationships. I was also causing harm to other people um, to my parents and to friends and to family because of how individualistically I was treating everything. Uh, so uh, it was rocky though, in the sense that like, I never, uh, in the beginning, I never felt like I was really clicking with 12 step recovery. I tried getting temporary sponsors and sponsors, um, in those early years and it didn't quite feel right to me. I didn't, I had trouble around some of those notions that I think a lot of people, on the more agnostic atheist side tend to think like, uh, what does higher power even mean to me? Or like, sometimes it feels like people are talking out of two sides of their mouth because in some of the literature, it's very, very, you know, Protestant Christian, but then people say you can make higher power anything. And I had trouble, I just had trouble holding it loosely, I guess you would say. Uh, what happened for me is that I, I stuck with it long enough that I think it kept me safe. And then I eventually found my way back around to Zen Buddhism. That was a thing that I lost earlier in my recovery and um, or lost earlier in my addiction process. And it was a gift of recovery for me because there was a time earlier in my life where I've really, really felt like that was my home. That was a place that provided some shape to the world. It gave me a, a way to make sense of suffering and uh, a practice for um, working on myself and, and working with my own mind and being in community. And drinking took it away from me. I would try to go away on meditation retreats, and then I would come back, and day one, I would be back at the bar and drinking and basically eradicate all the serenity or peacefulness or clarity that I had been able to put together. After a two-week or a three-week meditation retreat, I would go straight back out to the bar. There were other times that I would, I would make a resolution to show up at a Zen center or try to connect with the a community, but then my drinking would get in the way. And so for me, I needed both. You know, I've seen it in different ways. I've seen people who have been primarily in like traditional 12-step recovery, and then they they migrate almost entirely into a spiritual path and they don't do much 12-step anymore and they seem fine, you know, as far as I can tell from the outside. And I'm not willing to run that experiment myself. Like I still also need to go to recovery meetings. I need both because I've also met a lot of people in recovery who try to do it with spirituality alone and whether they wind up in the cult um, and in a bad situation, or they just wind up like convincing themselves they can drink again. And then 20 years, 30 years down the line, they get into a bad situation. I just, uh, th that experiment's not worth it to me. And to me, it's really important to guard my, my clarity. And I just don't see the value in intoxication anymore. And so I, you know, both because of my experience in recovery and also in in um, practicing this other spiritual path, I just don't have a big urge to drink. Um, it comes up occasionally as a, a sort of fleeting thought, like, oh, look at these people drinking. I wonder if I would. But it's just like a little part of me. It's a tiny little voice and it doesn't own me. And um, it's really not where the edge of my recovery is today. Like where my recovery is today is um, uh, looking at the deeper process of service, finding serenity, finding peacefulness, finding use, being useful to myself and to the rest of the world, stopping harm uh, in, in uh, 
I should mention that I, I came into Buddhist recovery meetings and some of those are like explicitly allied with the 12 steps and some of those are, you know, kind of parallel, but not in competition. Um, and, uh, you know, I think in both of those traditions, there's a big, big focus on getting outside of the self and being in community and the service being part of the remedy and finding ways of um, being really cautious about ego and self-seeking um, because of interconnectedness, because it's like the right hand washing the left. It's not like, oh, I'll do this for you so you can, you can, you can wash me on the next go around. It's just that we're all part of the same boat. And sometimes I can feel like I'm in touch with that. And sometimes I can't, you know, like for me today, relapses are anger, they're impulsive eating. Uh, I, I had a really healthy food delivery set up for last night and then it got canceled and I was hungry and it was 9.15 and I thought to myself, oh, I can make myself a big bowl of, you know, oatmeal with some fruits and whatnot. And, but you know, it'd be really fun to have like some fat. So I got like, not one, but like two big fast food burgers and that was like a real, it's not, you know, that's not like a relapse that's going to wind me up back in rehab. But I noticed in that moment, it was me turning away from the pain rather than like being with myself. And so it's still an ongoing process of working to be comfortable with myself, being comfortable, however it comes up. Um, and, you know, one of the ways that's coming up is around the book. So I'll mention, I'll mention the book that, you know, once I was stable in recovery for a little bit, I felt like. I wasn't getting what I needed in terms of understanding addiction because like also in recovery and also in, in rehabs, especially like I would say more in traditional treatment programs, like for-profit treatment programs than in recovery groups. Um, but in some of those programs, there's a big focus on disease language and um, a lot of that like ideological rigidity about like, you got to do it our way or you'll never make it. Um, or if you relapse, it's because you didn't, you know, do the first step perfectly or whatever you might say. Um, and in my own field, I really love science and medicine, but I also felt like it was sort of ideologically divided. And so I, I didn't really find like one overarching theory of addiction. I wanted to know what happened to me. And I just didn't really find the answers I was looking for. And so I, the, the short story is I wanted to come up with Carl's theory of addiction. I wanted to tell you and the rest of the world what addiction was and make sense of it all and start in ancient times and carry it forward to the present and do a lot of research. And what I learned from looking at the history of addiction was um, uh, a big dose of humility, actually. I, I learned that um, for me, at least, like uh, addiction is just a, a core mystery of the human condition that uh, I don't think it's an us them thing. I think that I, I belong in this tribe, you could call it. Like I, I, I feel a fellowship in recovery groups. I feel like I'm enough like an alcoholic that I call myself an alcoholic, that I take it very seriously. I consider it a matter of life and death. And also I don't think it's fundamentally different from the rest of human society. And that's, that's what I've seen in older times before we had like a modern medical idea of addiction. Um, and that's a paradox that for me, it's a paradox in the sense of that I am, I am this thing while also simultaneously, this thing is directly connected to the rest of human society. And I see it in my patients and I see it in my other people in my life that everyone struggles with self-control. Everyone struggles with shame. Everyone struggles with bringing their actions in line with their values and their meaning. And um, so I think there's, there's like a dual kind of fellowship there for me, but uh I was talking about recovery and, and fear and, you know, like another, another edge for my own recovery right now. And I, I'm really grateful for recovery groups where I've gotten the chance to meet other writers who are in recovery. Um, a real challenge for me now is like getting out of self-centered fear around like, oh, you know, am I selling my book or, you know, this person is getting that accolade. How do I get that accolade? Or, um, you know, I talked to, I talked to a friend who is a writer in recovery um, who at the time I talked to her, I was like, oh, you know, this thing didn't go that well and I wanted it to go better. And how do I get this thing that I want for myself? And she's like, you know, like the insecurity never goes away. This is a person with multiple published works. And, um, she was like, you know, a lot of these awards are coming out and 
you know, I don't seem to be getting nominated for any of them. And that's, you know, that's really, that's really difficult for me. And then literally the next week, she, she won one of the biggest literary awards in all of the United States. And so that gave me a lot of um, perspective on it that, you know, that uh, I, today I can feel compassionate toward that insecurity. And I can recognize that, you know, that's just a part of myself that's trying to help me. Um, I don't need to make it into some villain or something to eradicate from my life, but I, I really do have to be attentive to like when I'm living in self-centered fear, when I'm being driven by selfishness and self-seeking behavior versus like, what is, what is the actual why here? What is the why? Like, if I feel like I'm going on a talk or doing some other sort of like more explicitly book-related thing, trying to get something out of somebody else, it feels disgusting. It just doesn't feel good to me. But if I, if I can connect to the notion that I did the best job I could with this book, I'm proud of this book. I think I did a good job. I don't think it's perfect. I think, I think it's helpful. A lot of people have told me that it's helpful um, and it's worth sharing. So as long as it's worth sharing and to go out and, and say what I believe about it, um, then that feels nice. That feels great. And that's a form of recovery for me uh, because it's a matter of being a worker among workers. Uh, how can I be a worker among workers today, even though I'm in this weird position where I'm simultaneously called upon to like go out and promote things that I've done. Um, so, you know, I'm right about 20 minutes by my timing. So I'd, I'd love to leave it there. Um, Mark mentioned that uh, uh, you might wanna make this into a Q and A. I'm happy to take questions or I'm happy to also just hear people's shares. Mark, it's your meeting. So, you, you know, you tell me what would be the most useful way to go. Yeah, we're going to do Q and A part now in a second, Carl. And uh, yeah, thanks for coming again today. I took one or two notes, like what you said about struggling with shame and fear. Uh, yeah, the the yeah, leap of faith was good. And um, yeah, check out Carl's book, The History of Addiction. I'm going to post the link in the chat for it. Uh, we're going to do raised hands for the part of this. One second. Elise's first. Elise, you should be able to unmute now. Gotcha. Thank you, Mark. I always forget to do that after I record. I forget to unmute and I sit there waiting for the person. <laughs> um, I'm Elise. I'm an alcoholic. And I, yeah, I put my hand up because I'm on my way out the door in a minute to go see doctor. And I'm freaking out because I have totally low self-esteem and... I think everybody else is better than me and I'm fighting that. So it was really good to hear your share, Carl. I don't know if I have specifically a question, but I did um, come to the meeting this morning with definitely something I needed to share. And as almost always, I think always happens, it probably lines up very nicely with what you shared. Um, you talked about shame and fear and all that. And um, yesterday I was watching a documentary about Ben Crumb the lawyer who's defended a lot of the uh, people in our country, including George Floyd, George Floyd, um, and Brianna, I forget her last name. And I'm watching this and I'm just like in awe of the amount of confidence. And he said, cause he's always being attacked and questioned and you know verbally attacked and questioned. And he said near the end, he said, well, if I'm secure about that, I know who I am. I don't have to explain to anybody what my objectives are. Um, and then this morning I was watching some documentaries, I like documentaries on schooling in England, uh, public versus private schools, and you know why these young people growing up and going to these private schools are destined to succeed in in high numbers and it brought back a lot of memories for me about my high school years and I think this has a lot to do with alcoholism because I hear it a lot in the rooms that I was such an outsider um I skipped a lot of classes I walked around the hallways I looked in the door in the windows and the doors and I saw other students learning things and I feel like I felt like I couldn't like I didn't belong there in the room learning stuff. And I know as an adult, I'm constantly trying to overcompensate for that. Um, and I've done very well. I did go to college. I did go to um, beyond 
uh, I did go to graduate school and I talk about it a lot because I have to remind myself that I did it because I don't believe it. Um, so yeah, it's like, I'm terrified of doctors because I've, number of reasons, but I've, I have this, I don't know why, planted in my brain that they are so much smarter than me. And that's really scary because they know stuff I don't know, which means they have more power than me, which means they can take advantage of that knowledge and manipulate and, and whatever. And it terrifies me um, to be around people that I think know more about what I need to know than I do. Um, and anyway, so to finish up, um, it, I love these rooms because I get to know so many different kinds of people, including doctors, can be addicts, yes. <laughs> That's a relief. It's like, oh my God, they're people. They are real people too. Thank goodness, that helps me a lot. Um, and also the, just the whole thing about, you know, you talked about what you do about your fears and stuff, but this, uh, I'm, I'm 63, I feel like it's too late, really. I mean, it's too late to go back and redo what was done earlier. And I passed it on to my kids, this sense of low self-esteem, and I see it in my son. I, my daughter has a lot of self-esteem. I don't know where she got it. But um, I feel like, where, how can I fix this? How can I get self-esteem? I mean, I'm really working at it and, and the rooms help a lot. Um, but to me, you know, the, the, the putting down the drinks the first thing, but then ever since then, it's been all about trying to live life on life's terms, which to me means having a little more confidence that I can deal with stuff. And um, I'm adulting this morning. I'm going to the doctors. I'm trying not to have any expectations because they aren't the Wizard of Oz, you know, but maybe I'll learn something and maybe somebody will help me. And uh, I just need to say that out loud because I'm freaking out. Thanks for letting me share. Thanks, Elise. Let's look at the doctors today, honey. Thanks for all your service you're doing. That's next, it's Rose. Okay, I, I did have a specific question, if that's all right. Um, can you hear me okay? I'd like to ask Carl about the role opportunity and availability play in addiction and uh, whether you think there should be more emphasis placed on what society could do in these areas. I feel there is often an unfair emphasis on addiction being the fault of the addict, uh, with little acknowledgement given to the power of outside forces I personally find it difficult to identify with the unmanageable addict personality type and see how I was duped into believing that regular alcohol use was harmless, socially acceptable and fun. I now believe that consuming alcohol is unhealthy and does none of the things promised, so I don't drink anymore. I'm lucky to be in Tusnua, which is Free Thinking Fellowship, and I'm accepted. But I do think that some of the language of AA builds a barrier to people who do not identify as addicts, but do have a desire to stop drinking. So I wonder if you, you would have a response to that about opportunity and availability in addiction. Yes, absolutely. Um, thanks for bringing it up. Uh, I'll, I'll say that in my research in this most recent book I did, uh, I was really interested in how societies understood addiction. And a big window into understanding that was how societies made sense of drug epidemics. So that was one of the big surprises when I looked at the history is that uh, societies have dealt with epidemics for hundreds of years, at least going back to the early modern period when uh, intercontinental Congress brought different cultures and different substances into contact with one another. So when tobacco was introduced to Europe, Way back, literally after one of Christopher Columbus's first expeditions, there, were, there was a huge wave of tobacco use that at first was very was celebrated as if it were some sort of magical potion, and then later turned into a problematic epidemic. And despite massive threats like uh, excommunication from the Catholic Church or um, 
physical uh, physical derangement or even death in some countries, people kept on using tobacco because as we all know right now, tobacco can be a pretty addictive substance. Um, so uh, people tend to want villains. You know, people want a simple story for where an addiction comes from or what an addiction is. And uh, the, the way that epidemics go throughout history, I think reflects some of the complicated multifactorial nature of addiction where some causes predominate over others in different circumstances. But most, most of the big epidemics are under, undergirded by at least three processes. One is the substance. So substances are powerful. Um, you know, drugs are, drugs are more powerful than say like broccoli. And, you know, we all know that uh, cocaine is stronger than caffeine. So that, that, that is a factor. Uh, there's also the notion that's been called deaths of despair or social wounding. And um, that has to do with the fact that epidemics don't come out of nowhere, uh, that some societies are more vulnerable than others. Societies, when they've been subjected to war or trauma or poverty or um, uh, infectious disease epidemics, they, they're more prone to developing addiction problems. Um, but then, and this gets to what you're talking about, Rose, uh, there's a third factor that's the most commonly overlooked in my view, which is the role of addiction supply industries. So there, since the beginning of addiction problems, there have been massive industries that have sought to profit by selling addictive substances. And they have a vested interest in influencing the way that we think about addiction. And from the early days of AA, they, many of them, and a lot of the beverage industry actually had explicitly and directly tried to co-opt some 12-step uh, language about the specialness of addiction to say, oh, the problem's not in the bottle. The problem is in the person. There's, there's some small portion of people out there who have a problem with drinking and the rest of you are fine. And that's the exact same move that tobacco companies did around tobacco. That's the exact same move that stimulant manufacturers did in the 1920s, 1930s, when they first uh, generated methamphetamine and amphetamine. Um, I mean, you can look at some of the early advertisements. Amphetamines are used for everything. They use it for obesity. They use it for depression. They use it for alcoholism. People wrote in with reports saying, hey, listen, I tried... I tried this amphetamine to treat alcoholics in my psychiatric hospital and they all stopped drinking alcohol, but now they have problems with amphetamine. And then the, the, the amphetamine manufacturers went out and they suppressed that and they, they actively went out and pushed this narrative that um, addiction is some sort of special, isolated, neatly demarcated problem. So I totally agree with you, Rose, that like, especially nowadays, uh, we're way too lax about alcohol and most of the major alcohol policy scholars, I think would agree on this point that the World Health Organization and others routinely try to call out the dangers of alcohol and tobacco, but um, alcohol manufacturers and distributors are so powerful right now. I think it's, um, it's just really dangerous to set up that us them system, like bring it back to myself and recovery. And I, I'll try not to be so long-winded in my responses, but um, my own recovery, like that sort of us them dichotomy really worked against me. I looked at my parents and my parents did suffer more than I did. They had bigger consequences than I did. Um, I mean, I did have the psychiatric hospitalization, but up until that point, I was relatively functional. Um, and because I thought that alcoholism was some special thing over here that only a select few have, uh, that enabled my narrative to say that, oh, that doesn't apply to me. And um, you know, at the bottom line, the bottom line is I think there's like, there's some addiction in everybody. Some people get a bigger portion of it. Um, I have enough of a portion of it to treat it very carefully, but uh, yeah, I think we do a big disservice by uh, um, being cavalier about the dangers of some of these substances. So I, I appreciate the point. Thank you. That's great. I think it applies to other things, pornography, food. We're, we're being marketed addictive, addictive behavior across the board. and. Uh, there are higher, higher powers, you know, playing on that part of our human personality for financial gain. And, and I find that quite scary. So thank you very much. Thanks, Rose. Good to hear you. Uh, next is Brendan. Thanks a million, Mark. Thanks. Uh, and Mark, thanks a million for organising this and everyone else in Costnova. And uh, 
gone off my screen. But Carol, there he is. Um, Carol, thank you so much. Um, the last time I heard you speak, I mistakenly put a question in chat, uh, which was unfair because you were answering questions and you were very good to, to come back and, and, and put an answer in there for me. And I remember it, it uh, was in reference to, you know, what we say, if you're an alcoholic, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. And, and you did come back. And I remember part of your answer to me was about, you know, why risk it? And uh, I've got your book, by the way. and It's, it's fantastic. Um, it really is. I'm just coming into part four now. You've just been taken away by the NYPD, by the way. <laughs> and uh, I was kind of relieved for you. But um, when I was reading the book, the answer that you gave me the last time, I, um, I loved where you, you put in about the proverb that Freud had up on the wall uh, from St. Augustine, when in doubt, abstain. And I think that will, I'll, I'll try and imprint that on my brain. Uh, rather than wondering if I have this illness, is there a cure? Is it not? Because I'm not. I'm one of these people. It doesn't matter if they came up with some sort of cure or anything. I don't want to put volumes of alcohol into my system anyway. Um, not, not because I don't want to, but if it doesn't give me that, if it didn't give me that the kick and the high that I was getting, um, you know, if they wanted to come up with a pill that would make me behave myself and get to that nice place, uh, you know, where I would reach when I was drinking, and then keep it. But I couldn't, of course, as we, I'm sure like anyone here who's an alcoholic, um, you know, we get to that place where we're okay and we want to maintain it. Um, but anyway, that's just an aside. I had one question. Um, I mean, I knew a little about the arms trade and we hear a lot about it, but I had no idea until I read the book about the pharmaceutical industries and, and what they employ to sell what they do. I mean, I knew about the OxyContin thing, thanks to the recent... Um, Netflix show and that, and, and I found that was really interesting. And just tagging along to that about the things you talked about, like where they used um, through the years, there was punitive measures used for people, you know, substance abuse and, and alcohol and prohibition and all those other things. And then perhaps, uh, I'm not wrong here, in the last century or so, where they tried to use education and health, uh, various forms of, of health interventions. The question I have was, the only other thing that I did notice that there seemed to be a thread was how, um, if you like, uh, I, I suppose mainly dominated by Christian, Christian, the Christian church and all that, that it was, uh, if you didn't find God, in other words, if you didn't, if you didn't have an intervention through God, that you weren't going to get well. And I find that um, unfortunate. And the question is, we're getting too complicated here. I'm thinking it would be a help if there was 12-step programs um, similar to Jeffrey Munn's 12 steps. Um, I don't know if you've ever come across them, um, but secular steps uh, where people would go uh, into 12-step programs that didn't have the need or the, the, uh, the idea of God or even a higher power. I'm wondering, do you think there's ever any possibility of that? Sorry, I was so long with it. Made notes, and of course, I got all over the place. So, apologies to everyone. But thanks again, Carol. It was wonderful. Yeah, thanks so much, Brendan. And it's nice to be reconnected and no need to apologize for asking a question in the chat last time. No problem. Um, yeah, all, I guess all I could say is that I, um, I'm really supportive of the notion of many pathways to recovery. That's what the research shows. I think that's what the history shows that um, people recover in different ways. Uh, and especially in the U.S., but because the U.S. was so hegemonic and powerful, they sort of spread this notion throughout the world. Um, <clears throat> especially in the 70s and 80s, there was a notion that there was only one way. Uh, I have a quote in my book from uh, the director of the Betty Ford Center in the 1980s, who said, people ask me what they should do when they leave here. And I say, if you don't go to AA, you'll never make it. And this is factually incorrect. And by that point in the 1980s, we had scientific research that said that some people, even with severe alcohol problems, got better in a variety of ways. And some people did it primarily through a faith group. Some people did it primarily through uh, some other sort of social connection. Some people did it through mutual health. Some people did it primarily through medicine, whatever. Like I've talked about how I don't want to take that gamble right now. Um, and for me today, like I get more out of... Um, recovery than just not drinking. Like for me, it's a really primary home for my personal development and my work toward like feeling some measure of peace and 
contribution to the world and making myself right size. So I'm, I'm grateful for that. Uh, but I, you know, I see in the Buddhist communities more than the agnostic communities, because I'm not as familiar with the agnostic or atheist communities. Um, a lot of interest in rewriting steps or people coming up with their own formulation with the steps. Uh, there's several different versions in a sort of Buddhist, Buddhist agnostic way uh, where people explicitly rewrite a higher power into something like Dharma. And then you get into the question of like, oh, it's Dharma. And that, that's, you know, it's the whole kit and caboodle, right? I mean, you can talk about that for years. Um, and then I know other people like Kevin Griffin, a Buddhist teacher I really respect who comes out of the insight meditation tradition the same as some of those big names like Joseph Goldstein and Jack Kornfield and Sharon Salzberg, who says like, listen, I just, I, I don't, I don't rewrite the steps. I just, I just think about what it means to me. And he's written whole books on, he's written one whole book on higher power and he's written one whole book on some other stuff. And I like his work a lot. So, you know, I just, I like many paths, you know, some people, maybe they had a literally traumatic experience with religion, with organized religion or with a specific person or religion and they really need to keep that away and they don't want to see capital g god in whatever text or and great fine you know if, the, if there's an alternative out there and they can be presented with that alternative compassionately and with an open mind i think that's fantastic um and i think in the zeitgeist in the in the medical field in the recovery community i think there's a lot of interest and at least lip service being paid to many pathways and so I, I hope that that continues and people, people continue to create these alternatives and just allow it to proceed almost like Darwinistically, you know, like let's see, let many flowers bloom and let's, let's see what, what works. Fantastic. Thank you, Lynn. Thank you, John. Thanks for that, Mark. Uh, thank you, Brendan. Next is Erica Kay. Hi, can you all hear me? Good stuff, yeah. Okay, thanks, Mark, for bringing Carl. Thanks for speaking, Carl. Um, I really appreciated the the equanimity in which you kind of told your story and just put yourself right in the room with us. Um, so, um, boy, so much I wanna wanna ask, but um, uh, I've been sober um, over thirty years. And I came in on the PTSD ticket and I've been sort of quietly um, screaming and protesting in the background in um, sacred AA, I call it sacred and secular, like in, in when you're studying music, you know, uh, Bach wrote, you know, sacred and secular works. So um, uh, I, I really believe that the, etiology of my addiction uh, came from the taproot um, of a PTSD and early childhood sexual abuse. Um, and, uh, and it was just being, I guess, popularized, like in the early 90s, you know, PTSD was starting to become part of the psychiatric literature in some kind of meaningful way. Uh, as was the the discovery of sleep apnea, really, you know, um, which I suffer from as well. Uh, anyway, it's taken me uh, years to get diagnosed and treated for that. But I guess my question um, is, um, and I guess with with the Buddhist component. Um, and you were talking about inter interdependence and interconnectedness, which I'm completely on board with. But um, for those of us suffering from PTSD, which is very recalcitrant to treatment uh, in so many ways, um, I don't know if you found that, but I, I, I see you know, doctors and psychiatrists continually stumped <laughs> at how to, to, to treat it. Um, it's an ongoing process, but um, I'm just finishing up a, a, a dialectical behavior therapy group, which has been um, excruciating. And the kinds of mindfulness meditations that these psychologists start with are just the worst for a trauma survivor. They're always 
in some kind of precipitous you know, situation. You're at the bottom of the lake or uh, at some kind of great height. So there's this whole movement in uh, trauma, um, sensitive mindfulness. And um, because so much of a component of recovery, at least in the 12 steps is, is about you know, meditation uh, and uh, becoming centered and quiet um, uh, to get, uh, to kind of dial down the emotional dysregulation and, and, the, and the triggering. Um, and the reactiveness that happens with addicts and addiction. So I'm just wondering if you could speak a little bit about um, uh, about that, about um, this practice of meditation. I know that Mark Epstein talks about it a lot in his work, um, and and I, and he's quite an interesting writer, but kind of a shitty person <laughs> in my personal dealings with him and it was quite um quite difficult because I come from a family of doctors and my my stepfather is um is a psychiatrist and he's about is evolved as a, a nematode um you know just in terms of compassion so I guess what I want to say is I just felt a lot of heart and compassion in your talk so I appreciate that um so I'd love to hear what you might have to say with meditation as it applies to people who have PTSD and the stuff that can come up in the quiet. Um, yeah, thanks. Thanks very much. Thanks for sharing your experience. I'm, I'm sorry about that PTSD you're struggling with and um, for the experiences you've had with ineffective approaches to it. And I think you, you're, you're pointing towards something really important, which is uh, mindfulness and meditation is not a panacea. And sometimes it's been sold as if it is. Uh, there's so many apps, there's so many treatments, there's so many providers who say like, oh, I'm mindfulness based. And uh, that, that can be useful, but uh, I don't know that, um, uh, maybe it's gone too far in terms of just like the, the wholesale salesmanship of mindfulness. And I say that as somebody who has a meditation practice and really credit it with a lot of help. Um, I, you know, I, I'll, I don't know, I would hesitate to give advice, um, medical advice or personal advice or what, but I, I will say in my own experience, I had to pop around a little bit in terms of treatment. I needed to go back to psychotherapy when my mother was dying. That was probably around like eight, eight years maybe in recovery. And um, I found myself in IFS, internal family systems, that was helpful to me, but I also needed to find the right therapist. And, you know, people I respect like Andrew Solomon, they've written about, who wrote the Noonday Demon, a book about depression, right? It's about going to eight different therapists. And, you know, one was picking his nails and the other one um, wanted to talk about himself the whole time. And another person cried the whole session and uh, couldn't pay attention to him because, they were too lost in their own sorrow, whatever. And so I, you know, for me, my experience has been just finding the right personal fit and finding the right sort of technical or um, orientation fit. I like ACT in my own practice. ACT is acceptance and commitment therapy. For me, I think for a lot of patients, they can't sit. They can't sit. If I see somebody in active addiction and they they're, you know, they're, they have trouble sitting alone by themselves. Like, I'm not going to tell them to go meditate for 20 minutes at a time, or let alone 45 minutes at a time, which is the bog standard for mindfulness-based uh, stress reduction. And so some of these other therapies have a more easily implementable, like on the fly thing you can do for visualization. Um, and uh, yeah, again, I don't know, like, all I would say is, you know, I, I I think that there's a lot of really interesting, exciting developments out there. And also nobody has all the answers in 2022. So I, the person, my personal experience has been experimenting with a lot of different things and trusting my heart and trusting my gut about what actually felt good and what felt supportive to me um, was really helpful. Um, so I, I hope that's helpful. Next up is Bruce. 
Hey, uh, uh, Bruce, uh, and thank you so much, Carl. Uh, you hit on uh, two of the struggles that I've had um, in my three years of doing AA. Uh, the first being, you know, just the notion of the higher power. Uh, my first two sponsors uh, were just people from local AA community to traditional AA meetings, and they very point blank told me that I should stay away from that secular AA stuff um, and try to, you know, find a God of my own understanding um, just through the regular program. But, uh, you know, I didn't even want to use the word God at all. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, thankfully, I was, uh, uh, my second sponsor dropped me while I was in a relapse. <laughs> and uh, I made sure that uh, the sponsor that I, that I asked to, to help me after that was somebody who would be open to, you know, letting me go to a secular meeting. So became comfortable with the idea of, as you said, sort of the collective uh, wisdom of AA, people that have come before us um, as a higher power. So I got over that, but I've still had a struggle with the, the concept of spirituality, um, like when I still have a, some trouble with the relapse and I'm, I'm still wondering when I'm gonna, you know, have that quote unquote spiritual shift. Um, it was kind of helpful that somebody in a recent meeting um, kind of provided his definition of spirituality, which he sort of cobbled together from looking up a bunch of different versions of that online. And he just said, it's, a, it's kind of a, the core of you, it's your combination of your, thoughts, feelings, attitudes, and values. And I thought that was a really helpful way to look at it. And, and it's kind of helped me see that uh, my, uh, my most recent uh, relapse, I checked myself into the hospital for the first time ever and, and sought help. And I think that represented a change in my thoughts and attitudes and values and, you know, in just asking for help. And so perhaps, you know, I could say that was a spiritual shift. I've now 25 days back, I have not had a single craving for alcohol. Um, so I'm glad about that, but um, but I uh, and I'm also happy to say that my sponsor is uh, very open to my finding my own path through AA, and my grand sponsor is a practicing Buddhist and is willing to uh, get together with me and talk to me about some of the basic principles of Buddhism. So I think that's going to be really helpful um, in sort of uh, my taking that understanding of spirituality as sort of these sort of self-oriented things, my thoughts, my feelings, my attitudes, and kind of putting it out into a more collective um, or, or rather more sort of interconnected uh, way of looking at it. Um, and so I'm wondering, this is probably a really unfair question, but you know, uh, uh, do you sort of have uh, a working definition of spirituality that you, that you go by? Um, or is that just uh, something that, that would take up you know, chapters and chapters of a book? To, to talk about. Um, again, I, it's probably not a fair question, but um, I'm just sort of, I'm still seeking like something that I can hold on to as, as like a more concrete definition of spirituality. So that's it. Thanks Bruce, congrats on 25 days. That's Thank huge. You. Uh, I don't have a working definition of spirituality. I never really mm -hmm. felt a strong pull to come up with some sort of conceptualization of it. I did speak recently with, um, writer and philosopher Peg O'Connor, who is skeptical and secular as far as I understand it. And she's out about being in recovery about AA and has written about this. And uh, she's written recently that um, she follows the William James definition, which is uh, greater than the self, just some something greater than the self. And that, that's close enough for me today uh, yeah. I, in, in the kind of practice that I practice. And I'm not a teacher but I, you know, I can speak my, from my experience as a, a Zen student. Um, it, if you truly believe in emptiness and no self, then that gets very spiritual without necessarily relying on some sort of um, supernatural or metaphysical concept. It, it has to do more with just the experience of no, no essential self that persists immutably over space and time and all things being empty of substance. And I, I can't even say much more about that because that's sort of at the bounds of understanding. But, uh, you know, for me, that, that feel, it has the feeling of getting outside of myself. It has the feeling of getting perspective on and diminishing my outside ego. And um, that's worked for me so far. I hope that's helpful. It is, thank you.
to Bruce. Next is Charlie. Hey, thanks, Mark. And uh, yeah, thanks, Carl. That was uh, that was wonderful. Um, boy, there's so much to, to comment on. Um, you know, one, I, I find the history of addiction and how it was addressed in society is really interesting. So I'm, I'm sure we've read a lot of the same stuff. And in America, uh, in the first half of the 20th century, the, the treatment for alcoholism, if it was severe enough, was usually to just put the alcoholic in in an asylum with a general psychiatric population and flood them with morphine to get them through the alcohol withdrawal and then send them out. So typically most alcoholics came out cross-addicted to, <laughs> to morphine and alcohol. Um, and I'm sure, Carl, you're familiar with William Halstead, the, the, the great, he was a renowned surgeon and, and the founder of the surgical residency at Johns Hopkins in probably the late 1800s. Anyway, he developed this horrible cocaine addiction and the rest of his career was just periods of sheer brilliance followed by these absences where you know nobody would know what would happen. And he ended up getting addicted to morphine because of the, the, the uh, uh, standard of care at that time. Um, my, my father was a physician and I grew up in the 60s. So you know, this is before the Controlled Substances Act and, you know, barbiturates would land on our doorstep. Nobody had to sign for them. They were in with the utility bills and Dexedrine was a big drug then. They would give it to tired mothers of young children. Uh, I mean, it was just amazing. So I, I grew up around that um, and very lax attitude towards drugs and alcohol, which, you know, was my, my early exposure um, I'm actually a physician too, so I can relate to a lot of what you say. And one of the issues, um, you know, I think we struggle with in the healthcare professions is um, just fear of disciplinary action. And I wanted to get sober probably three years before I did, but I was so afraid of what would happen to my medical license that, you know, I, I just, I didn't know what to do. Um, and I finally got traction and it worked out really well. But I think that's a, a typical thing among, I see it in nurses and pharmacists and dentists too, is just there's such a fear of protecting our license that we tend to delay getting treatment. And I, I work, uh, I chair, our hospital system has a physician's healthcare committee that I've chaired for the last five years. So I do interventions on docs. And typically when I get involved, it's, it's a really late presentation. I mean, the person has just let it go, let it go, let it go. And then something god awful happens you know they've had an event at work or you know there's some really horrible outcome that they have to deal with um i think that also the suicide rate among physicians is a lot higher than the general population and i think a lot of it has to do with just this fear and this stigma not just addiction but mental illness as well um so of our of, of Finish. I don't want to. I could talk to you all afternoon, but um, we have a medical staff probably of about a thousand physicians in our total system, and our physicians' health uh, uh, committee. We're following about four or five, and two of them are for behavioral reasons. So, you know, statistically, ten percent of us have you know some unhealthy relationship with an addictive substance. So there should be about a hundred physicians out there that have a problem. We know about three of them. And it's not that we're a Mecca that doesn't have this. It's that, you know, we just don't see it. Healthcare people are really good at covering their tracks. Uh, I mean, I work with a lot of nurses and, um, you know, I th I'll, I'll finish with this because I don't want to take up too much time, but the culture in healthcare is you neglect self-care and you hide your feelings and medications and alcohol become in a susceptible person, they're they're very soothing and it's very attractive to do that. And you know, we know how the drugs work, we know how to dose them, uh, we know how to administer them, and it, it leads to this false sense of security. You know that I've seen in healthcare people, where we kind of think we're in control. I mean, that fueled my denial for a long, long time. So you bring up a lot of really good issues, and uh, yeah, it's it's really. I think I saw an interview. You did a podcast or an interview somewhere. I've seen in the last like six months or a year, but I, I remember it really impressed me. So it's nice to kind of see you on a more personal level. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Charlie. Good to hear from you. Thank you, Charlie. Next is Benny. Hi, everyone. Um, I don't have a question. It's just, I wanted to say about me. Um, I had a bit of a a medical procedure earlier in the day that I'll spare you the details of, but um, I sort of 
basically had this over and then I got home and I started thinking, God, I need to do the drink. I mean, you know, been brave and putting up with that. Um, and so I thought, no, actually what I need to do is get on some meetings. So that's, I thought I'd come on to this and then I'm going to town and go to another one afterwards. So anyway, that's it. That's my story, my day. Thank you. Thanks, Benny. Good to see you doing well, man. Sunshine. Next is Jason. Hello, Carl. Thanks for that. That was great. Great to listen to. Um, yeah, I've got a question. Um, I've got my, my, my addiction to audiobooks has, has recently led me to, uh, to buy Empire of Pain twice. But it once last year in the hard copy. And then when I slowly dawned on me that my battered attention span hadn't recovered sufficiently. So I caved in and bought the audiobook as well. Um, and that's going much better. So, uh, yeah, my, I mean, I'm sure your book deserves to be purchased twice, but I just wanted to, I'm trying to avoid that. And I'm, I'm wondering um, when it might be available in the UK, because I've just had a look on uh, on Audible and it's uh, US only, which is the bane of my life. It's, uh, yeah, it's not, apparently it's not not up for sale. In, do you, have they given you a heads up on, on that situation at all? Jason, I really appreciate the heads up because I do have a UK publisher, but I wasn't aware that there were restrictions on the audiobook. Uh, so I'll look into it. I appreciate I appreciate it. I don't know. I don't know any more about it. Okay. Yeah, nice one. Cheers. Thanks so much. Thank you, Jason. I actually have a quick question before you have to go. Carol, do you think recovery is easier for people that have higher powers than religion? It's a great question, Mark. I don't know. I honestly don't know. I, I think recovery is hard. For my experience was recovery was hard, but unavoidable. The alternative was even harder. So it didn't feel like that much of a choice. Uh, and I had the experience of connecting with a form of whatever you want to call it, spirituality, religion, earlier in my life. You know, people like, people in the secular and agnostic communities like uh, uh, Buddhism, I think, because we've long had this idea that it's a, uh, compatible with a scientific worldview and that it doesn't require accepting supernatural claims. And I think that's all true, but it also is a religion. It's a religion in the sense that it has a sense of like shared, be, shared beliefs and a, a particular view of how human suffering works and faith in a, a way of dealing with that suffering, you know? So I didn't have a problem with a higher power. Um, I guess one in, one way into the question is I've seen plenty of people, patients or otherwise, who don't necessarily hold on very tightly to the notion of higher power or don't have like that clear of a conception of their lives and still have really lovely recoveries. You know, they, they recover outside of a traditional 12-step concept and they're still, you know, reducing the harm they do in the world and helping a lot of people and, you know, so whatever. I don't like, I don't, I'm not sure. I'm not convinced that people need a higher power, but I, I do think it was, it was really helpful for me. And I've, I've read people, I've mentioned Peg O'Connor, you know, a lot of folks out there who um, have come up with, uh, I think, pretty useful ways of thinking about higher power without recourse to supernatural or other sorts of more traditional beliefs. Hi, I'm Amy. I'm an alcoholic. Um, I have been in recovery for a little over three years. Um, I just wanted to pop in to thank you for taking your time to share with our group. Um, I was a little bit tardy um, because uh, my daughter in Ohio uh, has COVID and I'm still recovering from it myself. Um, I really relate it to what you shared in regard to not necessarily wanting to pick up a drink, um, but still having those addiction behaviors like wanting to eat uh, uh, unhealthy. Um, that really struck a chord with me um, because I, you know, having had COVID and being sick for the past three weeks, I, um, you know, I haven't been thinking about drinking, but my thinking is not great. And a, a great, um, but also, um, you know, I do 
feel like, uh, you know, I've been away from the group for a while. So um, that isn't helpful. So those are all things that are, uh, you know, negative. Um, being away from the group. Uh, I had my psychiatry appointment yesterday. I have PTSD, MDD, and um, other things. So um, not having that appointment um, sets me back a little bit because uh, it's in person. I have to wait a little longer. And uh, then I do virtual therapy. So I have a lot of advantages with these three things that I that work for me. Um, and uh, but I'm always seeking more. Um, this, the talk about a higher power doesn't matter to me. Um, it matters to other people, though. I recognize that um, I'm able to manipulate it for my my use. Um, I just see love as a, a higher power. And so I'm just keeping it simple with that. Um, but uh, I look forward to purchasing your book. Um, I really like what I've heard from you and from everybody else who has taken the time to share. Um, and, and again, want to thank you for that. So um, I hope to see you again in another venue, uh, another uh, Zoom room. And uh, thank you again. Thanks, Amy. Congrats on three years. Hope your daughter is all right. Uh, we can all unmute now and thank Carol for coming. Carol has to leave in a minute or two. So thank you again, Carol, for me. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for a great meeting. It's clearly a very beautiful. Appreciate all your efforts to organize the meeting and and get me here. It's been it's been really helpful for me in my own recovery. So I really appreciate it. Thank you, my friend. There we go. Stopped.